Pastor John will be preaching this morning from Psalm 104, verses 24 through 35. And I invite you to turn in your Bible and follow as I read. Psalm 104, verses 24 through 35. O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy creatures. Yonder is the sea, great and wide, which teems with things innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships. And Leviathan, which thou didst form, to sport in it. These all look to thee to give them their food in due season. When thou givest to them, they gather it up. When thou openest thy hand, they are filled with good things. When thou hidest thy face, they are dismayed. When thou takest away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created. And thou renewest the face of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles. Who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. In our first message in this series on the pleasures of God, two weeks ago, we saw that God delights in His Son. He takes pleasure in His Son. For all eternity there has been an exuberant, mighty happiness between the Father and the Son in the fellowship of the Trinity. There's been an overflowing satisfaction as the Father beholds the unending, and I do mean literally unending panorama of His own perfections reflected back to Him in the radiance of His Son's face. And then last week we saw that one of the implications of that truth was that God has no deficiencies. He is all sufficient and complete in himself and therefore he cannot be bribed as though there were some hidden craving that he so desperately needed that couldn't be filled by the sun. And he cannot be blackmailed as though there were some weakness that he didn't want anybody to know about. And he cannot be coerced, as though there were some superior power over him that could get an arm behind him and make him do what he doesn't want to do, but rather he's free and acts according to his own good pleasure and delights in all that he does. And today... I want to talk about one of the most astonishing things God has ever done. The creation of the universe. And what a universe it is. What a universe it is. And what a God 
what a God must be behind this universe. I want to ask two questions. One, does God take pleasure in the works of creation? And secondly, if so, why does he? In answer to the first question, I direct your attention to Psalm 104, verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Now, that is not a prayer for something that might not happen. It doesn't mean, oh, I hope God will rejoice in His works, but He might not. I pray that He will, but He might not. Because if that's what the prayer meant, then the first line of the verse would also mean that. It would mean, oh, I hope God's glory will endure forever, but it might not. That's not what that means, and you know it's not. He's not praying as though it were uncertain. The the endurance of the glory of God forever is the rock-solid confidence of all of Scripture. Not only will it endure forever, but it will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. It is going to dominate the whole universe someday completely. So the psalmist is not praying for an uncertainty that might come true. He's exulting in a certainty. He's shouting the glory of the Lord. Let it endure forever. I agree. May it happen. It is sure. And the same thing in the second verse or the second line of the verse. May the glory of the Lord endure forever and may the Lord go on rejoicing in his works forever. So my answer to the first question is, He does rejoice in his works. He always has and he always will. Second question. Why? There are two reasons why I'm compelled to ask this question. One is I feel driven to answer the question why God's delight in his creation is not idolatry. Why is this pleasure that God has in creation not a dishonor to the sun? Why shouldn't the sun be jealous? Should God share his affections with the world? Can't he be totally satisfied in beholding his own perfections reflected back to him in the glory of the sun? And the other reason that I am compelled to ask why God delights in the world that he's made is that you're not told anything about the character of a person Yet, when they tell you that they delight in something, until you know a little bit about why. 
Because two people can be delighting in going to the same place or getting the same thing, and one from motives that are perverse, and another from motives that are honorable. And so, for those two reasons, I feel compelled to ask, why does God delight in the world? And that's all I want to talk about for the rest of the message, is why God delights in the creation, as verse 31 says that he does. And the way I want to answer it is to, to make five statements. Five statements about why God delights in his creation. And they're really not five separate reasons for why he does. They're really all one way of expressing the basic reason. So let me go right to that. And I think it's right here in verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Suggest to me that the reason the Lord rejoices in his works is because they are an expression of his glory. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. See the connection? So I would paraphrase those two lines something like this. As long as the glory of the Lord endures in his works, reflected in his works, God will rejoice in his works. Or you could paraphrase it like this. May the glory of the Lord endure forever so that he can go on forever and ever rejoicing in his works. So I think... The basic reason, and this is my statement number one out of the five, God rejoices in his works because his works are an expression of his glory. It's like Psalm 19. You all know Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, the sky, proclaims his handiwork. So the most basic reason, I think, that God delights in his creation is that his creation reflects his glory. He sees in it a reflection of his glory. And this answers my first problem. God is not an idolater when he delights in his creation. Because what he is delighting in is the reflection of his own glory. There's so much here we could talk about, about the way we should enjoy the world. But I'll just let you ponder that and take it up at another time. What about the Son of God? Should the Son be jealous of this delight that God has in the world? Is there a division of affections here? Does God rejoice in the world sometimes and in the Son sometimes? Is the sun to be jealous? Does the world rob the sun of some of God's affection? The answer is no, for this reason. Before creation, the Father and the Son were delighting each, in each other's glory and beauty before the foundation of the world. And then along came the time for creation. And what does the Bible say about who created the world? It says the Father and the Son created the world. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through Him, 
and without him was not anything made that was made. So when we ask the question, whose glory is being reflected or expressed in creation, we should not answer the Father's glory merely or the Son's glory merely, but the glory that they have together. That's the right biblical answer to whose glory is being reflected or expressed in creation. So that the way I think about creation is that the Son and the Father beholding in each other their mutual perfections and delighting with infinite energy in each other overflowed or exploded with superabundance in the creation of the world. So that the world is the the spin-off of the joy and the life and the love that God has in Himself. It's the bounty of God spilling over in demonstration. This is why I said a week ago, it's heresy to say that God created the world because He was lonely. Because that says that God created a created thing out of a deficiency which something created that is not God will now satisfy. That's awful to say such a thing. Creation is the overflow of divine abundance, not the effort of God to satisfy a deficiency. And so, my first statement in answer to the question, why God delights in the created world is that it expresses His glory. It is the overflow of the glory of the Father and the Son. And there is no competition. And both are equally glorified in the work of creation. Second statement. God rejoices in the creation because creation praises Him. And I'm talking here about non-personal creation now. Animals, rocks, water. Psalm 148 is a great psalm for calling the created order to praise God. Let me read a few verses of it, starting at verse 3. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. When you go out of the church today, you're going to look up at this magnificent sky and command it. Praise God, you blue sky. Praise God, you yellow sun. Praise God, you little spider. Praise God, snow. You talk like that? The psalmist does. Praise Him, you highest heavens. And you waters above the heavens, let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. Verse 7, praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and all deeps. Well, now, what does all that mean? What does it mean to call a speechless thing to praise God? could mean two things. One, it could mean... Testify to the world of men and women. Testify to us of God's greatness and wisdom so that we can praise Him. And I think it does mean that often. The heavens declare the glory of God. When you see them, 
they reverberate back to God in praise through our lips and our wonder and awe. But I don't think that's all that the psalm means when it says, Praise Him, all you deeps. All you deeps. There was a poem, there is a poem, called uh, Elegy Written Within a Country Churchyard by Thomas Gray, 1751. One of my favorite poems that I remember from my romantic literature class in college. And as I was getting this ready, one of the verses to that poem came back to me and I looked it up. Full many a gem of purest ray, serene, the dark unfathomed caves of ocean bear. Full many a flower will bloom to blush unseen and waste its sweetness on the desert air. Thomas Gray was stunned by the fact that at the bottom of the ocean there are gems more beautiful than any gem you'll ever see and no man will ever see them. Only God sees them and enjoys them. And there are flowers. I can remember Professor Kilby who died just a couple of months ago, was my professor in this course. He raised his little mousy head back and laughed with wonder when he told us, he said, do you realize today that on mountains in this world there are millions of flowers blooming and blushing in vivid colors and giving off fragrance and no man will ever touch, see, or smell them at all. Only God will enjoy them. And I can remember how deeply moved I was by that, and I think the psalmist is moved by that in verse 7 of Psalm 148, where he says, Praise the Lord, you sea monsters and all deeps. He doesn't know what's down there. He has no idea what's in the deeps of the ocean. He just knows there's something down there. And he says, whatever's down there, do your work. Praise God. Which must mean that praising God is more than causing me to praise God, because I can't see what it's doing down there, and I don't know what's down there. So I think... When he calls all the deeps to praise God, he means be what you were created to be and give God enjoyment in it. Ranger Rick um, arrives in my house once a month. Now, you should all know Ranger Rick. It's a little magazine here. It's uh, one of the most important theological journals I get. And that's, that's, that's true. That's a true statement. And I'm sitting here on the couch. I, I, I wrestle with Karsten and Benjamin to get Ranger Rick first. <laughs> and I sit on the couch and I read about the European water spider. Did you read about that one? You should read. This little spider goes up to the top of the water and he does a somersault to catch a bubble of air. And he holds this little bubble of air over his tummy where his breathing holes are. And he swims to the bottom of the lake. 
and he weaves, while he's breathing on this bubble of air, he weaves a little silken screen. And he drops the bubble under there and swims up fast and does another somersault, gets another bubble and brings it back down. And he fills up this little silk screen until there's a nice balloon of air and then he lives in there. And he has his babies in there and he reaches out into the water and gets his food from this little bubble of air. Well, who ever heard of such a thing? (laughs) And I think that as I'm sitting there with my mouth hanging open, reading this marvelous magazine, God comes down and he sort of laughs and smiles at me and he says, yeah, and do you know? that I have been enjoying that for 10,000 years before anybody knew it existed. And there are a million such things, 10 million such things that man has never seen, that God designed in the most extraordinary way just to enjoy because they are in their magnificent complexity and marvelous intricacy. And I think this psalmist in Psalm 104, is blown away by similar meditations. Look at Psalm 104, verses 25 to 26. Yonder is the sea, great and wide, which teems with things innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which thou didst form to what? My version says to sport in it. Yours may say to frolic in it or to play in it. That's what the word means. Why did God make blue whales? Or why did God make giant squid? I don't know what a leviathan is. Nobody does. It's just a big monster that that these seamen came back with terrible tales about. And they're out there just rolling over in the ocean. And when the psalmist, the theologian in the Bible, ponders whales, which is why I said Ranger Rick is a theological journal, when people with theological orientation ponder why there are such things, they give profound answers like, so that they can play in the ocean. And that's not insignificant. Why are there big monster animals out there in the ocean? So that they will just fill the ocean up with foam when they play. Why did God create the blue whale 200 tons so that when it gives one whack of its tail, the whole thing can come out of the water and hit it with such a sound, seamen can hear it three miles away? Well, just so that God would say, wow, did you see that? I did that. I made that. That's my whale. So I think the second reason why God delights in his creation is because it praises him. Not only in causing you and me to sit down on a magazine and say, what a God. What a God. Did I say sit down on a magazine? Sit down on the couch with a magazine and say, what a God who made such a spider as that. Third reason, God rejoices in his works of creation because they reveal his incomparable wisdom. Verse 24 in our Psalm 104, verse 24, the Lord, O Lord, how manifold are thy works in wisdom 
Thou hast made them all. The earth is full of thy creatures. I mean, don't you feel that when you look at the universe? I mean, we can't see much of it. But when you look at this universe, I am just so moved with what a work of wisdom it is. What knowledge is displayed. Oh, just take a little piece of the universe like this human body. Granted, it's wearing out, it'll decay and die and have to be raised up to perfection someday. But even in its fallenness, it is marvelous in its wisdom and intricacy. Or just take a little piece of the body like the brain. Man will never fully comprehend that marvelous problem of mind and body and how we can be persons and yet affected by so many physical things and how a thought can cause my arm to go bang just like that. Isn't that amazing? That's just phenomenal that I can do that with a thought. That I can cause motion with a thought. I mean, it is just astonishing. Wisdom. He made them all. And I think that the psalmist here sees this in verse 14 when he says, Thou dost cause the grass to grow for the cattle. Isn't that amazing? You don't think that's amazing, probably. Grass grows up and cows just eat it. Isn't that amazing that there's grass and there's cows? And he eats the grass and he gives milk. That's just amazing. And you don't think it's amazing. And the reason you don't think it's amazing is because you're all sinners. And the reason I don't think it's amazing because I'm a sinner. And I get this from Clyde Kilby, my good old professor. He stood up in front of me, in the front of the whole class one day, and tears running down his face. This man loved life so much. In fact, his first book was called Poetry and Life. He could just see more than any of us ten people could see in one square inch of the world. He stood there with tears running down his face and he said, one of the worst effects of the fall is that we get tired of things. A kid gets a wonderful toy on Christmas morning, he's sick of it by Christmas evening. You go to the Alps and you stand in awe before the sunrise coming over the peaks the first day. By the third day, you're belly aching about your sore feet from the skis and you don't even see it. Cows were made. Why, a cow itself is the most amazing thing in the world. It's just hilarious. And then there's grass and it's green and it's growing up, not down. And it's got points and it's not... It's just... You see how it's shaped? And he eats it. And he gives milk. And this is amazing. This is just astonishing. We should just stand there with our mouths open at every farm in Minnesota. Or take diatoms, for example. There's Ranger Rick again now. Di you know what diatoms are? Little uh, invisible plants. And if you take a spoonful of a lake in Minnesota, a little teaspoonful, you know how many diatoms you've got? One million diatoms in this little spoonful of water. And there are 10,000 species of diatoms. Can't imagine anybody cataloging species of invisible plants. And do you know they photograph these things about that big in Ranger Rick with color 
And they're all different shapes and sizes and color and they're magnificent and nobody can see them but God. But you know what they're doing down there? They're making tons and tons of oxygen so fish can breathe so you can go fishing. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is, is so you can go fishing. He invents diatoms. I mean, it is just amazing how God has put this world together. It should just stun us to silence as we look at how the world fits together. In wisdom He has made them all. The Lord is the everlasting God, says Isaiah, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. That's reason number three. Reason number four, God rejoices in His works of creation because they reveal His incomparable power. Not just His wisdom, but also His power. I'm going to take you now to one of the greatest hymns to God's power in all the Bible, Isaiah chapter 40, if you want to go with me, to verse 26. And we're going to see something that many of you have seen and perhaps not thought about as deeply as Isaiah has thought about. I'm sure I haven't. In Isaiah 40, verse 26, Isaiah looks up to the sky at night. And I have never been to Israel, and I don't know what it was like, Tom, when you were over there and you looked up at the sky at night, but I was driving between Chicago and Los Angeles when I was a junior in college. I just left Noel behind. We were engaged, and I was heading off three months before we were married, off to seminary, and like an utter idiot, I was driving straight through from Chicago to Los Angeles in my Mustang, loaded to the gills right up to my back with everything I owned. And uh, in the middle of Utah, way up on top of a mountain, I pulled off at a rest stop to get out and wake myself up and walked up a path to the peak of the mountain, way above the lights down below. And I looked up and I saw what I'd never seen before, have never seen since, a sky in which I could not distinguish star from star. It was a sheet of white light. I didn't think such a thing existed. I had no idea what people had meant before by the Milky Way. I'd never seen it like that. Just sort of a cloud before behind stars. It was a sheet of white light. And I was aghast. I didn't know what was going on. Maybe Isaiah had seen such a thing when he wrote, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. What a God. He has called every star by name. And if Isaiah was moved by what he could see, what would he feel today knowing what we know? That the nearest one of those stars, Alpha Centauri, is 25 million million miles away. And the little sky that he was seeing is a, is a stamp patch of our galaxy in which there are a hundred billion stars. And beyond the Milky Way, there are millions and millions of galaxies. What would Isaiah say today? 
What are we beholden to feel before such a God today? What a God. What power. Why did He lavish such a universe upon a creature like us? Why isn't that overdoing it? What a universe. And what a God. Which leads us to the last, fifth statement. God rejoices in the works of creation because they point us beyond themselves to God. God does mean for us to be stunned and awed by His creation, but not for its own sake. He means for us to say, if the work of God's hands is so abundant with power and wisdom and majesty and grandeur and beauty, what must God be like? What must the Creator be like if the Flinging out of his fingers is so majestic and grand and great and glorious. And I think that's the way the psalm ends up and that's the way God wants us to end up this morning. Beginning at verse 31, watch the progression of his thought up to God himself. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to Him. Why? For I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. In the end, it's not going to be the seas. It's not going to be the ocean. It's not going to be the deserts or the flowers or the mountains. It's not going to be spiders. It's not going to be the grand galaxies. It's going to be God Himself that satisfies the soul. Nothing short of God will do. The infinite expanses of the galaxies will not satisfy my longing for grandeur. Only the Maker Himself. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Let's stand and sing that chorus together.